Dear Father, we do thank you for the life of Abram. We thank you for Moses' faithful recording of it. And we thank you for the guidance of the Spirit in the transmission of these scriptures. We thank you that we can trust every single word and that it has all been given to us for our edification. But we pray that this morning you would guide us in our study, uh, that we might uh, learn from your character and from the interactions that you've had with those who have come before. We thank you for your faithfulness towards us. We thank you for the hope that we have in our salvation. We do praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, you may all be seated. Mo or, uh, Abraham was kind of on a spiritual high last week, um, and this week he stumbles a bit. Uh, this is nothing unlike our own walk, especially as we are growing in our maturity. Uh, this should characterize more a young believer than an old believer, but even older believers, even more mature believers can have this sort of uh, lapse of faith or this lapse of trust in the Lord. Uh, we shouldn't, but we do. We are moving from the covenant ritual, the actual cutting of the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, that promise that God has given to Abram that has continued through all of the descendants of Israel, that covenant which has at its heart the promise of restoration of all things and the covenant through which Christ will restore the earth. So this is a very significant, a very important passage that we have just passed through and we're still going to see the effects of it uh, being unfolded through the life of Abram, through his sons Isaac and Jacob, and to Jacob's sons. So the rest of Genesis, and in fact the rest of Scripture, has everything to do with this Abrahamic covenant. All the other biblical covenants will come out of it. But this morning we move to Abram trying to fix his own problems without God. This is always a mistake. Actually, as we'll see, this is more Sarah trying to fix their problems and Abram going along with it. So the main topic this morning, or the main point that I want you to have in the back of your mind as we go through this scripture, the world has one way of solving man's problems, and God has quite another. The world cannot rescue you. The world itself needs a rescuer. The world and its kingdoms have pitted themselves against the wisdom of God, and whatever wisdom it offers will oppose God his plan and program for restoration. The best fix the world has to offer is designed to keep you sick and tied to the world and separated from God. The most healthy thing that we can do from a worldly perspective is to become more worldly-minded and more wise in the ways of the world. The most wise thing we can do in God's estimate is to become wise in him, to put our faith, to put our trust, and to put our activities in him. So we start with this conspiracy that Sarai begins in order to fix the problem of barrenness. God has just promised Abram and Sarai because they are one flesh. He has promised them descendants. He has promised them that they'll be numerous, as numerous as the stars, and he has staked this promise on his own integrity as the almighty, infinite God. God will bring this to pass, but here Sarai is going to assert herself 
to bring it to pass. This is a worldly strategy that she devises. Genesis 16.1 says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. Now, Abram's wife, Sarai, is not always specified for us as his wife. Moses only gives us this reminder when it's going to come into play in the text. This is Abram's wife. If we remember anything about the divine institution of marriage from Genesis 2, man and woman become one flesh. If this promise has been given to Abram, it has been given to Sarai. And in fact, in Genesis chapter 17, because Abram and Sarai just have not gotten it through their thick skulls, God is going to promise specifically that this seed will come not only from the body of Abram, but from the body of Sarai. But here's the problem. And this goes all the way back to the beginning of our series here in Genesis 12 through 25. Remember that Sarai was barren and she had no children. This is uh, observable. She had no children, but then this is medical as well. This is something that God could have known and it was reported to him or from him to Moses as he wrote the scriptures. Sarai didn't just not have kids yet. She was barren. Her womb did not work for bearing children. But a plot hatched in her mind. She has an Egyptian maid. Her name is Hagar. Now, interestingly, Hagar is not an Egyptian word. It's a Hebrew word. This was probably a name that she was given after she became a maidservant of Sarai. And it means flight, to flee. So it may have been that this became her name after this episode, or it could be commemorating their flight from Egypt, because if you remember, they were chased out dishonorably. One way or another, her name becomes flight in Hebrew. And it is not uncommon for a lord to rename his subjects. And so this name was given to her. But she's described here not as a concubine, and at no point will she be described as a concubine until Genesis 25. Something is going to change that reduces her to the name concubine. But here she is simply a maid, a handmaid, who is the personal servant of Sarai. We'll remember in Genesis 12, 14 through 16, where they may have acquired Hagar. She didn't come with them from Ur. She didn't come from Haran. She came from Egypt. It came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. This is Sarai. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore he treated Abram well for her sake, and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. This is actually the first place we meet Hagar. We just don't know her name yet. Now, some commentators like to uh, create elaborate stories that go beyond the text, and one of them says that Abram was very attracted to Hagar, and that's why he accepted this offer. Well, look at how Sarah is described here when they come into Egypt. Sarai is stunningly beautiful, more beautiful than all the Egyptians. Sarai, despite her age, 
is probably significantly more attractive than Hagar. This isn't Abram lusting after a concubine. This is a plot that's hatched to solve a problem that God has promised that he will solve. Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid, and perhaps I will obtain children through her. Now, this is going to start to sound quite a bit like the fall of man, like Genesis 3.6, where they start shifting the blame. God, you gave her to me. If you really want to trace it back, this is actually your fault. Now, Sarai very subtly is pointing the finger back at God. Yes, God has promised us children, but he's also made me barren. Therefore, we have to find a way around this problem. She might even think that she has higher motives here. To justify God's promise, I have to do this. We do that quite often in our salvation. To justify God's promise of eternal life, I have to now work for my salvation. All of this is foolishness. And none of this comes from the wisdom of God as recorded in his scripture. But it is very true that God has prevented her from bearing children. The statement is true. And now she may be interpreting this one way, but God means it in another. In Genesis 20, when they meet Abimelech, and once again, Abram sells off his wife as if she were his sister. All of the women in Abimelech's crowd are made barren as a punishment. Abram prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maids, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed fast the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This is at times, a punishment from God. This is something that he can use because this is something that he can do. But it's not always a punishment from God. This is how God works his plans, and this is how God creates and demonstrates that man has no hand in it. We'll remember in 1 Samuel, actually this is the very beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 1, Verse 2, we met, meet Elkanah, Penina, and Hannah. Elkanah is a priest at the tabernacle. He has two wives. The name of one is Hannah, and the name of the other is Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. When you get to 1 Samuel, this is supposed to remind you of Sarai. It's supposed to remind you of Genesis 11.30. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had closed her womb. God had done this, and was it a punishment on Hannah? We are never given the impression or the explicit statement that this is a punishment on Hannah. In fact, we see that this is how God works for his glory. So that when Hannah does finally conceive, it is only by the hand of God and all will see that. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her 
because the Lord had closed her womb. When we move into the New Testament, we remember the parents of John the Baptist. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blameless in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. When we see problems in fertility in Scripture, those problems can only be resolved by God. These are mechanisms beyond our control. Things that no matter how modern our science gets, we really can't fix these problems. Because these are problems of creation. Problems that require a creator to step in. Problems that require the almighty God to do his work and that he might be glorified. Now, once again, to tie this into our own situation, if mankind can't fix their own problems of fertility, do you think we can solve our own problem of death? Only God can do this. Now, if God works for his glory so that Sarai and Abram, Elizabeth and Zechariah, Hannah and Elkanah, so that they can't boast that they somehow fixed their problems, how much more in our salvation? And Sarai really can't do anything about her own barrenness. But the world has devised a way to get around this. She says, please go into my maid and perhaps I will obtain children through her. Now these won't actually be Sarai's children, will they? The world will judge them as such, but will God? Is this the way that God had promised to fulfill this promise? Now this statement, I will obtain children through her, this is the meaning, but it's actually an idiom that's used here. I will be built up through her. The last time we saw this verb used was at the Tower of Babel. Sarai, in order to be vindicated, is going to work her own way back to the top. Now, it is hard to squarely place a bad motive or a bad intention on Sarai here. Yes, this is filled with the first person singular. I, 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 I. Her intention is to bring about the heir that God has promised. The problem is her faith in how it's going to happen is placed in herself, is placed in her husband, Abram, and not in the one place that it should be placed, which is in God. Her assurance is mislaid. Why? Because she was barren. She had no children. God knew this. When God called Abram and Sarai out from Ur, God knew this. When God called them out of Haran and into the land of Canaan, God knew this. When they went down into Egypt and they threatened the seed that would come through Sarah, God knew this. And that's why he sent a plague on the Egyptians. It wasn't 
Abram and his reproduction that was protected. It was Sarai's. God knows that he is going to work a miracle in the womb of Sarah. And that through that is going to come the nation through whom he will bring the Messiah. God has this all planned in his mind, and man knows so little of the plan. And yet they are trying to devise their own way to fix the problems that they think God has not fixed. In Genesis 12:7, do you think God didn't know when he told Abram, to your descendants, I will give this land? Surely God knew. When he protected Sarai, Abram's wife, this was the last time in scripture we saw her designated as his wife. Again, Moses places this in here when it's important to remember the relationship between a husband and a wife. In chapter 13, after Abram finally separates from Lot, remember he was told to separate from your father's household. Abram, his sister, Sarai, who became his wife, and his nephew, Lot. God deemed him faithful to have separated from his father's household after he separated from Lot, despite the fact that he's still traveling with his sister. Why? Because his sister had become his wife. This is now his household. Lot was not. And so when Abram has separated from the world, from his father's household, and to God, and this household that God is building up, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which you see I will give to you and to your descendants forever. Not only does he promise that he'll have descendants, but that somehow they will possess this promise without end. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, uncountable. Or in 15, three through five, which just happened in our outline. Abram said, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Now remember, he's speaking legally here. Because my possessions have to go to someone and someone has to take care of me when I die, legally speaking, if I die here, my possessions are going to someone else's household, to someone else, to a slave. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. God is working to fix the problem. Keep in mind, Abram is 85 here. Not too old to have a child. Obviously, he has one with Hagar. But later, when we see in Malachi and when we see in Romans, the assessment of Abram and Sarai, it's not just Sarai who's too old and barren to have a child, but even Abram is assessed as old too old for this sort of reproduction. But God is able to overcome that. God created man from dust. Of course, he can open a barren womb. Once again, we have this situation where the man's wife has 
listened to a bit of worldly wisdom and has suggested it to her husband. And her husband, rather than listening to God's word and saying, no, that is not the direction that our family is going. He simply says, all right, sure. Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. This should actually say Genesis 3.17. When we go back to the fall, during the curse that God is laying on the earth because of man, when he turns to man and begins to speak to him, he says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Because you chose her words over mine, because you subjected yourself to the creation rather than to the creator. Notice as well in this curse that the woman's portion has to do with her reproduction. He says, I will greatly multiply your pain and your childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Now we spent about an hour detailing why this isn't multiplying your pain in childbirth, but multiplying your pain and multiplying your childbirth. God already has a program for overcoming the problem of death. The problem of separation, spiritually, physically. And remember, in our seven deaths in scripture, one of those deaths is the ability to reproduce. Separation from mankind and his ability to reproduce himself. This is why in Romans, we're told that Sarai was dead in her womb. She was still alive, but her ability to reproduce had been separated from her. God is able to put that back. God is able to restore that. He has the promise of a seed. It is going to come through the woman. After this curse, Adam believes this promise. That the serpent crusher, the redeemer, the restorer, is going to come through the woman. Notice Adam is absent from this whole statement. But when God speaks to Abram, just like to Adam before the fall here, he said, I think I'll go with the worldly wisdom instead. Remember back when they first went into Egypt after coming into the promised land. What was the logic that led Abram to sell his wife into Pharaoh's harem? It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarah, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say this is his wife, and they will kill me, and they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that I may go, it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. Abram is fearing for his own life over which God is sovereign. 
if God has promised to bring a seed through him, to bring a seed through Sarai, God is going to keep him alive to do that. Now we're watching Abram's faith build. His faith has built beyond this point. This is where he was in chapter 12. We're now in chapter 16. He is more mature, but that doesn't mean he's not going to have his moments of immaturity. Right now, Sarai is learning what Abram learned in Genesis 12. Abram was a spiritual adolescent here, a spiritual baby. He was just coming to know who God is and how sure his promises are. It does take Sarah a little longer because she is doing now exactly what Abram did in chapter 12. In order that I might be protected, that I might be safe, we're going to lay you on the line. Sarai decides that she needs to be built up. She needs to obtain children, and she's going to do that through surrogacy. And in order to do that, Abram has to engage in a consort outside of his marriage. Both of these trivialize the promise of God, the promise of the coming seed. Both of that lay the onus on man to make it happen rather than on God, and neither of them respect that God has said it is coming through you. Well, naturally, just like anything that is based in worldly wisdom, this brings about conflict. It may seem like a clever idea, but the end of that idea is not going to be peaceful. Genesis 16.3 says, After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. Now this ten years may be significant. I think the best significance that I can surely say is that this is a long time. This is a long time to be in the land of promise, having obeyed God's command, to separate from family, and to be a blessing in the land, and not to see God's end of the deal held up. This is a long time. Now, some commentators have noted that after a certain period of time, say 10 years, either a female is deemed to be barren and therefore has a responsibility to bring a surrogate from her slaves to the husband, or else that after 10 years of barrenness, the husband is allowed to divorce his wife. All of these have been suggested, but I wasn't able to find any original sources to, to prove that by any means. So let's just say this is a long time to live without God's promise seeing its fulfillment. doesn't mean God is not fulfilling it. It means we haven't experienced yet that fulfillment that God has promised that is absolutely sure in time, because God has promised it. And so Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave it to her husband, Abram, as his wife. The woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. So she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave it also to her husband with her, and he ate. 
Have I mentioned yet that Moses is a very clever writer? Moses tells us what we need to know about the situation by the way he writes it. Moses is not impressed with Sarai and Abram's logic here. He relates it explicitly to the fall of man. Remember, we had a fall of man, and then God stepped in to restore the problem. And then what did we have? A fall in the second generation with Cain. And then we had death, 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 death for 10 generations, the hope of life in Noah. And then in chapter 9, what do we have? A fall of man after God has wiped the earth clean and started again. God is about to start a new nation, Israel, through which he will bring the restoration promises. And what do we have right at the beginning? But a fall of man. To show that under no circumstances will it be by the agency of Abram that God's promises are fulfilled. But despite Abram. It wasn't because Abram was the best of all men on earth, but because he was low, because he was humble, and so that God could show his glory in making this man, this imperfect man, into his chosen people. If we didn't see the weakness of their flesh, we might somehow mistake God's glory for Abram's. God's glory for Sarai's. Thank God that he is so honest in his text to show us that man is not able, but God is. Remember I mentioned here that Abram is on a different spiritual plane at this point than his wife. She continues even into chapter 18 to laugh at the promises of God. She just doesn't believe it. She doesn't see how it's going to happen. She has not yet learned to trust his word. If we remember back to our study in 1 John, it was about six months ago, and I hope we've got six-month memory at least. John chapter 2 gives us three different maturity levels. He calls some the fathers, others the young men, others the children. Well, Abram was a child. And... In John's assessment of these spiritual children, they have been introduced to grace. They stand in faith, but they have not yet learned to get their information from the proper source. They are still tempted by the Antichrist, still tempted by those who would give them false worldly wisdom. They don't know yet where to build up the doctrine in their mind. John is exhorting them to trust in the word of the apostles. That's what children need, to know where to get the food and how to eat it. Young men need to know how to use the energy that the food gives them. This is what John is teaching these young men. Abram knows the word of God. He knows the promises of God. He trusted him. Genesis 15.6 reminds us, Abram trusted in these promises of God. The problem that he has is he doesn't have much perseverance. He's tempted and swayed by the things of the world. Sarai goes to the world's wisdom. 
Abram doesn't have the guts to say no. Abram is tempted by his wife. And that's why Genesis 3.6 and 1 John 2.16 are often linked. Because it's these temptations that the world have to be what God has told you not to be, to have what God has told you not to have, or to do what God has told you not to do. You know his word in order to disobey it, but you disobey it. You haven't yet learned to be obedient. It's the fathers who have both learned God's word and learned how to obey it. And their only exhortation in 1 John 2 is to keep on keeping on. Keep trusting God's word. Keep on obeying. Well, this is where Sarai and Abram are. Abram is a young man in his faith. And Sarai is still an infant. And how many young men get by very far in their lives by listening to the infants in their life, telling them how to live? Like I said, this is worldly wisdom. She has gone to the wrong source. We're going to look at some of those sources in just a second. But what does James say about these sources? He says, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show, his good show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. Well, I think, Sarah, I think she's pretty clever here. I'm going to get an heir. It's going to belong to my husband. And it'll, it will belong to me by adoption. But what is the end of this? It says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. We're about to watch a cat fight break out between Hagar and Sarai. It's not pretty. And then once again, we see Abram acting as a lame duck. And he just says, you guys deal with it. And then we get abuse and oppression. This is the pathway of the world's wisdom. It looks so promising to begin with. It looks to hold all of the promises that God has given to us, but it holds them in a different way that has terrible and awful results. Think of the temptation of Christ. You can have all of the kingdoms of the world if you will bow down and worship me. If instead of submitting yourself to God as his Messiah, you submit yourself to me as my Messiah, I will give you the same end that God has promised to you. And, bonus, it'll come without you having to suffer the cross. And what does Jesus say? No. What does he do? He quotes from scripture. He goes back to the promise that God has. And what scripture does he quote but the covenant that God had given the people of Israel that promised a king who would get the land? A king who would be the king over Israel when Israel would be over all of the nations. He quotes to Satan God's promise of the same thing Satan is promising as an empty promise. So if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above. This is earthly, natural, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. It is disorder and evil that this situation is about to spiral into. 
but rather the wisdom from above is first pure, untainted, undistorted by the world. It is pure wisdom from God. Then it is peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. The seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Well, naturally, the result of this situation between Abram, Sarai, and Hagar, Genesis 16, 4 says, he went into Hagar, which is a euphemism for they conceived together. She conceived. When she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. Similarly to Elkanah's two wives, Penina and Hannah, Hannah was despised in Penina's sight. Penina was proud of her ability to produce offspring for her husband. Now, if you keep going on in 1 Samuel, you'll see these two offspring are, uh, are not the best offspring. But Samuel is. And so the same is going to happen here with the offspring of Hagar and the offspring of Sarai. But it says here that her mistress was despised after she had conceived. This is not a common word at all in Genesis. And where it has appeared before has been in Genesis 12.3. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you or despises you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now remember, these are two different words for curse in this second line. The first is to esteem lightly to belittle, not to recognize as being the object of God's blessing. The one who belittles you, curses you, I will cut him off. I will put him under a curse. The blessing and cursing paradigm runs all the way through Moses' writing all the way to the point where they're standing on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, pronouncing blessings from one side and cursings from another side before they enter into the land. When we go back to Genesis 1, we see that after God created things, he would bless them so that they would be productive in the environment that God places them for the purpose that God had placed them there. He is going to cut off the one from productivity, from God's place of blessing. They're not going to share in this blessing that is coming through Abram and Sarai. Now, when I say that this is worldly wisdom that Sarai has attached herself in, I don't say that as an empty statement. In fact, we have quite a bit of evidence from that time that these were normal practices. When we look at the code of Ur-Namu, from Shinar, and we should all know Shinar is the valley which the Tower of Babel was placed in. And this is only about 300 years after the Tower of Babel. Ernamu, from 2112 to 2095 BC, was the founding ruler of the third dynasty of Ur. And where did Abram come from but Ur? 
the builder of the best preserved ziggurat in the ancient Mesopotamia, whose reign inaugurated the last great period of Sumerian literary creativity. Now look at when the end of his reign is, Ur-Namu, 2095. Abram enters into the land in 2008 BC. Abram had been in the land of Ur after the dynasty of Ur-Namu. This would have been the law code that he knew from his time. This would be like a law written in the 50s or 60s that we still use today. Those come up all the times if you watch C-SPAN as much as I do. This is the ziggurat that Ur-Namu built in the land of Ur. He is accredited as having been its builder. Well, this is what the code of Ernamu says. It says, if a man's slave woman, comparing herself to her mistress, speaks insolently to her, her mouth shall be scoured with one quart of salt. This is a situation that they're aware of. A mistress speaking ill by comparing herself to the, uh, to the mistress. Or the Code of Hammurabi. Most of us, I think, are more familiar with the Code of Hammurabi as a name than any of these others. Sometimes people try to identify Hammurabi as Nimrod. It's, uh, it misses by about four or five hundred years. But the Code of Hammurabi was developed in Babylon in about 1700 BC. So this would have been about a hundred years after Israel enters into Egypt before they begin to be oppressed by the Egyptians. So they would still have free trade and free range here. Hammurabi was the sixth of 11 kings in the old Babylonian dynasty. He ruled for 43 years from 1728 to 1686, according to the most recent calculations. The date formula for his second year, the year he enacted the law of the land, indicates that he promulgated his famous law code at the very beginning of his reign. So about 727, 726 was the code of Hammurabi. And we have it today. We know what this law was, and in fact, this is one of the most complete law codes that we have. And uh, it was a little drudging to sleuth through it this week. But law number 146 speaks explicitly to the situation that Sarai and Abram find themselves in. When a senior, uh, senior married an heirloom, which means a free woman able to be married, and she gave a female slave to her husband and she has then born children, if later that female slave has claimed equality with her mistress because she bore children, her mistress may not sell her. She may mark her with the slave mark and count her among the slaves. So first she's a maid. She's elevated not to Abram's concubine, but to Abram's wife. She is still the second wife for the purpose of bearing heirs. Concubines don't bear heirs. Wives do. She had to be married to Abram, but she's still subject to Sarai. If this female servant who marries the husband of the first wife for the purpose of bearing children for that first wife 
then sees herself as an equal. This law in the Code of Hammurabi protects her from being sold outside the family, especially since she's just born a child into this family. But it does say you can put her back down below being a maidservant into a slave. Or the Nutsi tablets from the Hurrian kingdom. The Hurrians, which is what uh, Haran was located in the Hurrian kingdom and Abram lived in and came from Haran when he entered into the land. These Nutsi tablets are from 1450 to 1350 BC. That means right around the time that Israel was coming out of Egypt, these tablets were written and they recorded the laws of the land at that time. They are in Akkadian cuneiform. This says we have 6,500 tablets, but last I saw, I think we have over 20,000 of these tablets now. We know a lot of the laws of the land of the Hurrian dynasty. In one of these Nutsi tablets, we see an adoption contract. Once again, from the same situation that Abram and Sarai are in. It says Kilam Ninu, which is the wife, has been given in marriage to Shanaima, the husband. If Kilam Ninu bears children, Shanaima shall not take another wife. In other words, if we apply it to the situation of Sarai and Abram, if Sarai had been able to bear children, there would be no reason to take on another wife. But the situation arises in the world and in the world's way of looking at things, that if this woman is unable to bear children, then you could take another wife. But if Kilam Ninu does not bear, Kilam Ninu shall acquire a woman of the land of Lulu, which was where they would get slaves from, as a wife for Shanaima, not a concubine, not a slave, a wife. Because unless you're the status of a wife, your children cannot be an heir. And if Kilim Ninu, or and Kilim Ninu may not send the offspring away. What does Sarai try to do with Ishmael? And in chapter 21 succeeds in doing by sending the mother away. Sarai never adopts Ishmael. Sarai never refers to Ishmael as her own. We have also an old Assyrian marriage contract, and this is more in the time of Jacob, but it would have been common law probably before our first record of it here in the Assyrian dynasty. It says, Lakipum has married Hatala, daughter of Inishru. In the country, Lakipum may not marry another, but in the city, he may marry an heirloom. So depending on where they live, he's able to take another wife or he's not. If within two years she does not provide him with offspring, she herself will purchase a slave woman. And later on, after she will have produced a child by him, he may then dispose of her by sale wheresoever he pleases. This law code allows you to sell the slave woman outside of the family. The last one we have here is a Neo-Assyrian Neo text from about the time of the exile of Israel, so quite a bit later. But I included this one to show you that these laws aren't changing much. Over 1,500 years, generally these laws stay practically the same. Now this is a surrogacy clause in a marriage contract. 
If Sebetu does not conceive and does not give birth, she may take a maidservant and as a substitute in her position, she may place her. She will thereby bring sons into being and the sons will be her sons. If she loves the maidservant, she may keep her. If she hates her, she may sell her. The onus is on the wife to decide what to do with the slave. Well, these are the kinds of laws that Abram and Sarai are inculcated in. In this Canaanite society, having lived in the Hurrian kingdom, having come out of Ur, this is wise by the world's estimation. This is how the world deals with these problems. And this is how Sarai decides she's going to deal with this problem. She didn't make this up out of thin air. This was what they did. But this was not faith in God. And so Sarai says to Abram, may the wrong done me be upon you. Once again, this is a Hebrew idiom saying, you are at fault for the wrong that I've received. Now I'm sure Abram kind of threw his hands up like, how is this my fault? This was your idea. You sent her in here. I just went along with it. Well, going along with it is problematic when he's the head of the household and should be saying no. He should have learned through the episode in Egypt. You don't mess with God's chosen line. You don't try to protect your life yourself. You don't try to propagate this life yourself. God has promised God will do it. Sarai is rightfully upset, rightfully angry. Once again, I remind you, she put her trust in the wrong thing. But she has been wronged here. Someone has come between her sacred relationship with her husband. They have become one flesh in God's estimation. And although it was her idea, she introduced a third party into that. Proverbs 30, 21 through 23 tells us under three things the earth quakes and under four it cannot bear up. Under a slave when he becomes king and a fool when he is satisfied with food and otherwise things that shouldn't add up, things that shouldn't happen. Under an unloved woman when she gets a husband and a maidservant when she supplants her mistress. These are things that defy nature. These are things that defy the structure of how things were built to be. She says, I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. Now this isn't just Sarai's opinion. She doesn't say, I, I didn't really like the way that Hagar looked at me or spoke to me or just treated me. I didn't like, I didn't like that. Moses is an editor, spoke in 16.4 and gave his estimation of the situation. He says her mistress was despised in her sight. Moses agrees with Sarai that she was wronged. This passage, it's really hard to say, this person's innocent and this person is guilty. Because everyone is hurting everyone. Everyone is acting wrong, 
because they attached themselves to the best wisdom the world had to offer. And they separated themselves from God. And the world is going to keep them sick. So she says, may the Lord judge between you and me. Now she calls on God. Let God's justice figure out this situation. Now Abram steps in. Let God be the judge. And he says, no, you be the judge. Abram said to Sarai, behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. You see, when God is the judge, he's going to judge between Abram and Sarai. What did Abram just do here? Leave me out of this. You solve it. You handle it. Do to her whatever you want. Just don't put me on the hot seat. He says, she's in your power. Do anything you want to her. I don't care. Well, we all know hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And three things make the earth quake and four things it cannot bear. And one of those is a maidservant supplanting her mistress. Sarai's wrath is kindled. And she's about to take it out on Hagar. Remember, in Hammurabi's code, she may mark her with a slave mark and count her among the slaves, but she cannot sell her. It's not yet a law. It doesn't become a law until the Neo-Assyrian dynasty in about 500 BC that she's able to be sold if she hates her. The world's logic continues to deteriorate. Here, she's bound to keep her, but she hates her. So what does she do? She treats her harshly and she fled from her presence. Now, it's interesting, Moses, who is writing this to Israel, who has just come out of Egypt and they're about to get the Mosaic Law. A lot of these stipulations in the Mosaic Law are explained by the scenarios that he is telling them about in their history in Genesis. Sarai here is treating her harshly, and because of this harsh treatment, she flees from her presence. Now, under the Mosaic law, if a slave flees because of harsh treatment and oppression, under this scenario, the person who they flee to is supposed to protect that slave from this harsh treatment, to protect them and to not deliver them back to the person who is abusing them. Sarai, who treats Hagar harshly, sounds a lot like the Egyptians who treated the Israelites harshly. In fact, once again, this is a word that Moses uses very sparingly. Only two times in Exodus does he ever use, or no, only one place does he use this, but he uses it multiple times in this first few chapters of Exodus to tie it back, not necessarily to what Sarai is doing to Hagar, but to the promise that God had given Abram in the Abrahamic covenant that his people would be oppressed and treated harshly. God has just told Abram, your people are going to go into a foreign land and be treated harshly. And in the next episode, we see Sarai, who has a foreign maidservant, who she's treating harshly and oppressing as a servant. 
Exodus 1, 8 through 10, a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come and let us deal wisely with them. Worldly wisdom. Or else they will multiply, and in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. The king of Egypt, his best proposal for how to protect themselves from losing the Egyptians or the uh, Israelites, but also to protect themselves from being conquered by them, is to enslave them. And it ends up being their slavery that causes them to conquer Egypt and to flee. Had they let well enough alone, it wouldn't have occurred. This is the world's wisdom. It will backfire. It is not designed to work. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them for the purpose of treating them harshly. They afflicted them with hard labor, and they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor in the mortar and bricks and at all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. Now God raises up Moses. And in Exodus 2, we see it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that. And when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And he went out the next day and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, why are you striking your companion? But he said, who made you a prince or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and said, surely the matter has become known. Once again here, we have worldly wisdom trying to fix worldly problems. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh. Moses is an Israelite. And even he, after being brought into the family of the Pharaoh, even he is oppressed here. Pharaoh tries to kill him too. There really is no Israelite that escapes the persecution of Egypt here. But Moses fled. This is the word that is only used twice in Exodus by Moses. He fled from the presence of Pharaoh, just like Hagar fled from the presence of Sarai, the oppressor, and settled in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Also, we'll see in Genesis 20, this is what Hagar does when she's finally sent away by Sarai. But when the king of Egypt was told that the people fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a, chart, had a change of heart toward the people, and they said, what is this that we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? Israel fled their oppressor. And when they came into the land, just as we saw from our verse in Joshua, Joshua 1.8, their responsibility in the land is to keep God's law in their heart and to do it in order to prosper. And one of the 
protective clauses that God puts in that law code is that they not do what Sarai did to her maidservant. He says, you shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. If you afflict him at all, and if he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry. And my anger will be kindled, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Now, why did it matter so much in this situation with Abram and Sarai? Because Moses or Abram had been given a responsibility as a steward of God's promises. This is similar to, but not the same as his covenant relationship with God. One is conditioned on his obedience. The other is a guaranteed promise. Abram was told to go into the land to separate himself from his country, his relatives, and his father's house. Finally, he did that in chapter 13. He was also told when he enters the land to be a blessing. Remember, this isn't a future statement. This is a command statement. It says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. Go and be a blessing. Abram finally succeeds to do this. In Genesis 14, remember, he blesses every single person he encounters in that chapter. And it's after that that God makes a covenant with him, an eternal covenant. But here now, we have Abram failing to steward God's blessings towards those who are in the land, towards those whom they have brought into the land. God is going to deal with Hagar very generously in the next chapter. He's even going to promise her similar success in her descendants. Why? Because she has not been adopted into this family. Sarai does not accept her, hit him, the offspring Ishmael. But this is not the promised seed that God will bring it through. But still, she was cheated. Hagar was used and abused by Abram and Sarai. Hagar also did things wrong. But God is going to promise her great progeny. And unfortunately for Israel, this resulted in a perennial enemy. The Ishmaelites or the... Is this the Edomites? I can't remember. When they first come out of Egypt... They call them the Ishmaelites and even the Hagarites. These will oppress the children of Israel. But guess what? It's their own making. They did this apart from God. Just like when we look at creation and its fall, this isn't God's creation. This is man distorting God's creation. And it's those things that afflict us. It's not God. It's not God that introduced death and separation into the world It's man who did this, and it's man who reaps the consequences, and it's, once again, God who steps in to pick up the pieces. So we remember then that the world has one way of solving man's problems, and God has quite another. God's not done solving this problem of Sarai's barrenness. But now he's got another problem to figure out. 
He's got to deal with Ishmael. He's got to deal with Hagar. And God's wisdom is pure. The world cannot rescue you. The world itself needs a rescuer. The world and its kingdoms have pitted themselves against the wisdom of God. And whatever wisdom it offers will oppose God, his plan and program for restoration. The best fix the world has to offer is designed to keep you sick and tied to the world and separated from God. Now, I know a lot of people have great ideas about how to teach God's word, programs that we can institute into the church in order to amp up church growth or amp up engagement and involvement. All of these are worldly programs. We need more marketing. We need more advertising. Even, sadly, witnessing turns into a marketing strategy. This is the world's wisdom trying to build God's church. But who builds God's church? It's not even us. God builds his church. God upholds and sustains his people. And that is why we don't try here to, to preach sermons that are going to be short enough, creative enough. I'm not the most eloquent speaker you'll ever hear. But that's the world's wisdom. That is the world's wisdom telling you God can't do it without you doing it this way, without you doing it the world's way. God's hands are tied behind his back. The world knows how to bring in crowds. God needs the world's wisdom. This is utter garbage. We cannot depart from God's word. We go verse by verse through the text. It is going to take us years to get through Genesis. How long do you think it took Abram to get through Genesis? His whole life. And that's what it takes. Is That's what it'll take. But God will bless the study of his word. Because we are attaching ourselves to the source of heavenly wisdom. The only source of heavenly wisdom. It is completely sufficient. And this is where we plant our feet. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your word. We thank you that heavenly wisdom has not remained in heaven, but you have handed it to us. Through the apostles, through the prophets, through the scribes who transmitted it, but guided by your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you have preserved and protected your word so that we can continue to grow in our knowledge of who you are, to grow in our own spiritual maturity as we continue to grow deeper in our faith, trusting your word. We do praise you in your son, Jesus. Amen.